You turn now to a consideration of a neglected text in the development of apologetical method, one that's rooted in Revelation, Colossians 1.15 through 2.8. I've published two essays on Colossians 1.15 through 20 and its relation to various theological and apologetical concerns. The first appeared in a volume entitled Revelation and Reason, and the second appeared in a recent festschrift for Sinclair Ferguson entitled Theology for Ministry. This lecture is supplemental to both of those essays and assumes some of the work presented in both. In this lecture, I want to connect what Van Til termed the metaphysical and epistemological principles of revelation to the method of reasoning by presupposition that operates in Paul's encounter with the Colossian syncretists. Paul supplies us with an exemplar of this approach as he engages the Colossian syncretist who espoused a philosophy rooted in the elemental principles of this world and the traditions of men and were therefore not according to Christ. He draws a very sharp a very clearly delineated antithesis to that syncretistic error. Now, I want you to know I do intend in the next two or three years to publish an extensive book on Colossians 1.15 and its implications for Trinitarian theology, image of God, the resurrection of Christ, the nature of consummation, and its bearing on the development of a presuppositional method. So this material will be a sketch of a forthcoming project and is adjusted particularly to the concerns of this module. By way of summary, Paul sets forth a comprehensive systematic contrast between the Christ of the revealed mystery, Colossians 2.3, and the Colossian syncretism that rests on the philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the elemental principles of this world. The substance of that revealed mystery has not been thoroughly understood outside of some of the more insightful work that you find in Herman Ritterboss and others. Now, what I want to do then is outline the nature of the mystery and delineate its comprehensive implications for the argument Paul sets forth and the contrast he draws that reaches a kind of climactic expression in 2.8, where he sets a philosophy according to human tradition and according to the elemental principles of the world over against Christ, the mystery. The central concern of the book of Colossians orbits around the mystery of the revelation of the fullness of deity and the finality of revelation located in the eternal person of the resurrected Son of God. He is the image of the invisible God, 115a, the firstborn over all creation, 116, the firstborn from among the dead who is preeminent in all things, 118, 
Paul applies the fullness of this revealed mystery in Christ to the syncretistic error known as the so-called Colossian heresy. Now, while there's no scholarly consensus on the precise nature of this heresy, it is very likely that the Colossian heresy could be termed, in the words of Clinton E. Arnold, as the Colossian syncretism. The heresy likely sought to fuse an embryonic version of Greek Gnosticism with an emphasis on the hidden pleroma that confers true wisdom, with a Jewish form of the Judaizer's error that sought to subject the church to the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant. 2.17 makes allusion to that. Therefore, and this is critical to understand, the syncretistic heresy blended into a single philosophical approach comprised of those who reject the scriptures of the Old Testament, the Greek Gnostic strand, as well as those who accept but distort the scriptures of the Old Testament, the Judaizing strand. What we need to appreciate and keep in mind hinges on the way Paul brings the revealed mystery of Christ, its metaphysical and epistemological dimensions, into a totalizing critique of the Colossian syncretism. Paul begins in Colossians, as he begins in Acts 17, with the revelational content of the mystery, comprehensive of eternal and temporal reality, as the presuppositional starting point that opposes all forms of unbelief, whether Greek, Jewish, or a syncretistic fusion of each, as he encountered in Colossae. Now, let me explain this mystery, and note this up front, that you will not find, apart from the work of Ritterboss, as far as I'm aware, a thoroughgoing attempt to explain the full range of the revelation of the mystery. But first, as you talk about the revelation of the mystery, I want to talk to you about a processional relation of personal origin in Colossians 1.15a. The ultimate reality that anchors Paul's conception of the mystery emerges in the processional relation of personal origin in 115a, the eternal Son, as the image of the invisible God. Herman Ritterboss, with his characteristic depth of understanding, grasps that this revealed mystery has its alpha point in the underived glory of the eternally processing Son of God. 115a is beginning with Trinitarian processional relation of origin in the eternal generation of the only begotten Son of God. This is something that is critical. Voss, uh, Ritterboss rather says, quote, By calling Christ the image of God, Paul thus identifies Christ's glory with that of God himself. And the same thing applies in Colossians 1.15, so that there is special reference to Christ's glory as the pre-existent one in 
these passages. He says, It is evident here anew, therefore, to what extent the divine glory of Christ, even in his pre-existence with the Father prior to his redemptive revelation, determines and underlies Paul's Christology. End of quote. I'll simply add this. This processional relation of personal origin is the deepest revelational locus of the mystery of Christ. And it's especially in that language of the Son as the image of the invisible God that Ritterboss proves insightful. He says regarding 115a, quote, by, desig- by the designation image of God, he, the eternal Son, is on the one hand distinguished from God and on the other hand identified with God as the bearer of the divine glory. Now let me advance beyond Ritterboss's language and give it a bit more dogmatic precision in keeping with everything Ritterboss is saying. To render Ritterboss's language in dogmatic terms, Being distinguished from God brings into view an incommunicable personal property, what theologians call a relation of origin, and a relation of personal coherence, perichoresis. Being identified with God brings into view the Son's distinct personal subsistence as the simple and undivided divine essence. And so distinguished from God brings into view personal distinction within the Trinity. Being identified with God brings into view the Son's subsistence as the whole and undivided and uncommunicated essence of God. And so the person of the Son is thus distinct from the person of the Father in a processional relation of personal origin, yet identified with the essence of the Father in a relation of personal subsistence. The relation of personal origin is person to person. The relation of personal subsistence is person to essence. If you'd like more that discusses this more thoroughly. You can see my book on Van Til's, uh, tr- the Trinitarian theology of Van Til and the discussion of autothean personhood. But moreover, the eternal Son in the processional relation, according to 2.9, has the fullness of deity of himself as the simple and undivided God. That means he has his essence from himself, because he is the pleroma of the theotates, the essence or, or nature of God. He has his person as the image of God from the Father. He has his essence from himself. He is the fullness of deity. A parallel observation from Hebrews 1.3a confirms this, that the Son is the active radiance and not the passive reflector of the glory of God. You could see Voss's teaching on the epistle of the Hebrews for more. But let me put this in dogmatic language in the Calvinist tradition of divine personhood. 
Paul's basic metaphysical principle in Colossians 1.15a, the deepest Christological strand of the revealed mystery consists in an autothean conception of the person of the Son of God. Calvin argued regarding that processional relation, quote, when apart from consideration of the person we're speaking of his divinity, I say that it is predicated of him that he has his essence from himself. When speaking of him in his relation to the Father, we say he has his person from the Father. So, as a subsistent person, the Son of God, is not sustained in his essence by another person, but he does relate eternally to the Father in a processional relation, not of essential origin, but in a processional relation of personal origin. Uh, We're scratching the surface, but here's what you have to recognize. This is something Paul does in Colossians that he does not do in the book of Acts. Colossians 1.15a is tantamount to Van Til's insistence that we begin with the method of reasoning by presupposition by making clear our most basic metaphysical principle, which is the ontological trinity. Paul begins in terms of of the logical depth dimension of the revealed mystery, he begins with a a processional relation of personal origin of the Son of God. Paul's revelational starting point is nothing more, nothing less than the ontological trinity focused on this processional relation of the personal origin of the Son of God, the eternal, uncreated Son of God. Now, secondly, as we talk about the revelation of this mystery and look at it in terms of its theological depth dimension, Paul appeals to what we can call in 115b through 16 a personal relation to creation. We have a processional relation of personal origin. We have a personal relation to creation. In verse uh, 15b, Paul speaks now of the Son as firstborn over all creation. And in verse 16, he speaks of the Son as the one by whom all things were made. Things in heaven that are invisible, things on earth that are visible. This is if you want to uh, to relate this to some dogmatic uh, categories, this is what Voss speaks of in RD 178 as the new relation to creation. The new relation to creation. Paul offers an expansion, a cosmic expansion, on the nature of that relation. In 16b, the Apostle Paul says that God created all things that are visible and invisible on heaven and on earth. In fact, 16b presents a chiasm that brings into view heaven and earth. And it it proceeds in this way. In, In verse 16, A, heaven, B, 
earth, B prime visible, A prime invisible. The personal relation to creation there in 15b and 16, the Son is firstborn, is a relation by which the Son brings to pass in creation all things in heaven invisible and earth visible. It's a comprehensive cosmic presentation. The new relation of creation includes all things visible and invisible, heavenly and earthly, which is precisely what's in view in Genesis 1.1. As M.G. Klein argues extensively in God, Heaven, and Armageddon, Colossians 1.16 is an inspired apostolic commentary on Genesis 1.1. So Paul is moving from the relations of the Trinity ad intra to the relation of a Trinitarian person ad extra to creation. He says this, Genesis 1.1, Colossians 1.16 being a commentary on it. What this states is that God in the beginning created both the upper and lower spatial spheres. The heavens and the earth is not just a marismas, a pair of antonyms, which as a set signifies totality. The phrase rather denotes concretely the actual two components that together comprehend all of creation. More precisely, Genesis 1.1, and by extension 1.16, affirms that God created not just the spatial dimensions immediately accessible to man, but the heavens too, that is, the invisible realm of the divine glory and angelic beings. This interpretation, listen, this is Klein, this interpretation is reflected in the Apostle Paul's Christological exposition of Genesis 1.1, declaring that the Son created all things that are in heaven and are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. Colossians 1.16. He says, see also John 1, 1 through 3 Heaven, then, in 1.16, is thus a distinct created realm presently veiled from sight. It is the archetypal dwelling place of God after which the provisional earthly dwelling places are patterned, whether it's protological Eden or the typological tabernacle or temple. Now, as I've lectured elsewhere, Klein speaks of the Spirit's indoxation in that invisible heaven temple created in the absolute beginning. While all of God's works are one and undivided, there are terminal works peculiar to each person. The Son is eternally generated and becomes incarnate. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and is poured out from heaven on the day of Pentecost. In the work of creation, Klein, in God, Heaven, and Armageddon, argues that the Holy Spirit forged a personal and permanent relation to that heaven temple, to that heavenly dwelling realm at the alpha point of creation, filling that heaven temple with the glory of the Father and the Son, populating it with an angelic host. He calls this indoxation, a personal and permanent dwelling of the glory of the Spirit in that holy, created, and presently veiled heavenly realm. 
In that relation, remember, the relation can change, the creatures in the relation can change, but the person of the Spirit remains living and immutable in that sovereignly willed personal relation to heaven. Klein did not advocate any form of mutualism, whether it be um, modernist or evangelical forms. Matching that new relation that Klein brings out with regard to the Spirit permanently and personally indwelling that heaven temple. The Apostle Paul says something similar about the new relation of the immutable and enthroned Son as firstborn over all creation, including the invisible heaven and the visible earth. The firstborn Son, prototokos, the firstborn Son, according to Paul, was enthroned in the heaven temple at the alpha point of creation and was the one by whom all things visible and invisible on earth or in heaven were made. Matching Klein's doctrine of indoxation in the spirit, in the heaven temple, we have the incoronation or enthronement of the eternal son in that heaven temple. This is what Isaiah sees when he sees the form of the Lord in Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. This is what John sees in incarnate and exalted form in Revelation 4 and 5. This is what exalts him above all created things. He is the one by whom they were made. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This, which I call incoronation, this enthronement of the pre-incarnate Son of God in the heaven temple, explains why there can be no fullness or pleroma above him or beyond him. He is the one by whom and for whom all things were created. And it's just in light of that, then, that we can appreciate the argument's development. Paul moves in 15a from eternal intratrinitarian relations, explaining the Son as the eternal and uncreated image of the invisible Father. He uses image language to describe this processional relation of personal origin. And then moves from that odd intra-reality, that work that terminates in God, to an odd extra-reality, a work that terminates outside of God, and speaks of a personal and permanent relation of the Son to the things in heaven and on earth, the things in invisible and invisible. All of this begins to help you recognize that the revelation of the mystery which is Christ is a comprehensive mystery that encompasses eternity and the alpha point of the creation of space and time, invisible and visible. Colossians 1, 18 through 20, especially 18b, the beginning and resurrection from the dead, represents the redemptive restoring and perfecting of what was lost by sin in the original relation of God to Adam 
as the image of God. In verse 18b, Paul says that Christ as the firstborn from the dead marks the beginning of the new creation. The once-for-all eschatological accomplishment of the original purpose contemplated in creation has come to its fruition in Christ as raised. The bodily resurrection of Christ as firstfruits of the one great resurrection harvest, constituting him the last Adam in the life-giving spirit, perfects that religious fellowship that God gave to Adam before the fall. He is firstborn among many brothers. He is the first fruits of one great resurrection harvest. As raised, Jesus Christ is the de facto, once for all fulfillment of what God promised to Adam in Eden. And he perfects the new relation of creation as raised from the dead. But Colossians 1.18 also makes clear that Jesus Christ, as raised, is preeminent in all things. 1.18b makes that clear. As firstborn from among the dead, he is not only first in order, but first in dignity. Why? Because the firstborn from among the dead is the firstborn over all creation. And now there's much more that we can say and will say at a different juncture. But what I want you to notice here is that the movement that qualifies this mystery is a movement that encompasses eternal intra-Trinitarian relations, the new relation to creation, and its redemptive perfecting in Christ as raised. So we have Trinitarian, creational, and redemptive categories, all of which, listen, all of which together fill out and define the substance of the mystery that is Christ. Colossians 1.26 and Colossians 2, 2 and 3. Now, why do I take time to outline, even in thumbnail form, the significance of that. Well, Paul brings this theology of the Son of God, the personal relation, the processional relation of personal origin, the personal relation to creation, the redemptive perfection of that relation in Christ as race. He brings the substance of this mystery to bear on the Colossian syncretism. And in Colossians 2.8, Paul sets... Christ as the substance of the mystery over against the traditions of men and the elemental principles of the world. And I want to talk to you about the nature of that contrast here as we talk about Colossians 2.8 in particular, kind of the center of what Paul is saying. In light of the preceding argument, we ought to anticipate a generalizing or totalizing character to Paul's argument in 2.8 that takes into account the comprehensive character of the mystery of these Trinitarian relations in eternity and time developed from 115 
up to 2.8. And that's precisely what we discover. Paul generalizes in order to establish a comprehensive antithesis between the revelation of God in the immutable person of the ascended Christ and the philosophy rooted in the traditions of men and basic principles of the world. So as you look at 2.8, the references to the traditions of men and elemental principles of the world most suitably encompass the features of the Colossian syncretism. Murray J. Harris takes the first kata, the first according to, in 2.8, as conveying the sense of, quote, basis or source of the philosophy, namely, the tradition of humans as opposed to divine revelation. And so, when we think about that first kata clause, that first according to clause, it's The traditions of men set over against divine revelation. It's a comprehensive contrast in terms of source or origin. James Dunn observes that Paul may have left his warning vague or unspecific so it could cover a wider range of possible alternatives to his gospel than the more specific challenge at Colossae. Meaning what? That The specific form of the antithesis Paul presents rests on what originates in natural philosophical reason and the traditions of humans on the one side, as opposed to the revelation of God concerning the mystery that is Christ on the other side. Now, in addition to that observation, If it is preferable to take the first kata as denoting the origin or source of philosophy, it's preferable to take the second kata clause, the second according to, as describing its content or substance. That's a quote from Murray Harris in his commentary, who is useful on the grammatical side. The substance of the Colossian syncretism rests in the elementary principles of the world. Now, that has drawn numerous, almost countless scholarly monographs trying to determine the precise meaning of the elementary principles of the world, elementary spirits of the world, and trying to grasp what that means. Paul also speaks this way in Colossians chapter 4. Let me propose this as a guide to help. Elementary principles of the world is elastic enough to capture both strands of the Colossian syncretism. If the proto-Gnostic strand of the Colossian syncretism is in view, the reference would be to the alleged fullness of wisdom that emanates in the world. If the Judaizing strand of the Colossian syncretism is in view, the reference would be to the Old Covenant divorced from Paul's mystery or possibly some elementary spirits in Jewish folklore. But on either view, the substance of the Colossian syncretism 
would be either some impersonal proto-Gnostic source or some Christless reference to the Old Covenant as understood by the Judaizers. And I think Ritterboss is probably right that both would be a reference to the sin-cursed eon. The thing that unites the the proto-Gnostic strand and the Judaizing strand is that both are manifestations of the fallen, sarkic order. One is a Greek expression, one is a Jewish expression, and when they're joined together, the elemental principles of the world is elastic enough to explain both. The point being, then, that if the first Kata clause refers to the origin of the philosophy, the second Kata clause refers to the substance of the syncretistic philosophy, then the third kata introduces the negation of the previous two. Any philosophy that finds its source outside of the revelation of the mystery and finds its substance in Greek or Jewish speculation is set antithetically over against what is according to Christ. It would mean, as Harris observes, that the essential weakness of the philosophy was that Christ was neither its source, clause one, nor its substance, clause two. As a result, the particular problem at Colossae was the occasion for an ad hoc application of a comprehensive philosophy of Christ to all syncretistic errors, Jewish, Greek, combined, all that are not rooted in and according to Christ. Moreover, it's significant Paul doesn't offer an exhaustive description of the details of that Colossian heresy. He doesn't provide a highly detailed account of the philosophical and theological assumptions of the syncretism, but what he does is provide an extremely well-developed account of the theological basis of a philosophy according to Christ. A philosophy that begins with processional relations of personal origin has a very definite conception of the Son's personal relation to all things in heaven and on earth and that centers Christ as raised, not only as the perfection of the redemptive relation, but the beginning of a new creation as the firstborn from among the dead. It is a comprehensive, Son-centered declaration. Christ the mystery of God, 2-2, means that all who oppose him are operating in terms of empty deceit. Paul makes this explicit. It is an antithesis. Colossians 2-8 draws an antithesis that finds its substance and center in Christ and in his revelation. Any philosophy of any sort rooted in any tradition and filled with any content that is not according to Christ, according to Paul in 2.8, leads to, because it begins in, empty deception. Now this argument, given in summary form, is precisely the conceptual terrain inherent in Van Til's transcendental method of reasoning 
by revealed metaphysical and revealed epistemological principles. Ventil says along these very lines, now with Acts 17 and Colossians 1.15 through 2.8 in place, listen to what Ventil says. The method of reasoning by presupposition may be said to be indirect rather than direct. The issue between believers and non-believers and Christian theism cannot be settled by a direct appeal to facts or laws whose nature and significance is already agreed upon by both parties to the debate. The question is rather as to the final reference point required to make the facts and the laws intelligible. The question is to what the facts and laws really are. Are they what the non-Christian methodology assumes they are, or are they what the Christian methodology presupposes they are? We've had two examples from Scripture, at least. Taking this one, the Colossian syncretism thinks that facts and laws are not according to Christ in in self-consciously antithetical to the revealed terms of the mystery. Back in Acts 17, Paul's conception of the resurrection as proof of final judgment stands categorically over against the totalizing philosophy of history found among the Epicureans, who would say that the resurrection is an example of an irrational move or swerve in the falling of atoms through space. It's not that at all. And so there is a comprehensive, presuppositional contrast that derives from the fact that the Apostle Paul and the Reformed tradition seeking to follow him begins with revelation. If it's Acts 17, an integrated revelation of the history of natural and special revelation. If it's Colossians 2 and a syncretizing error between Greek and Jewish uh, 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 religions, the, the substance is the revealed mystery that is Christ. The nature of the conflict between the Christian and the non-Christian proves comprehensive in character because of the comprehensive character of revelation, the revelation of the mysterion. Ventil explains in his survey of Christian epistemology that the Christian claim is a transcendental claim. This is not a capitulation to Kantian idealism that located the principles of intelligibility in the synthetic a priori structures of the active mind. Van Til was not an idealist of any sort. The transcendental claim, as Van Til presented it, rests in the comprehensive self-revelation of the triune God as the condition that renders all human experience intelligible. The transcendental argument is the consistent application of classical Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism to all forms of ancient, medieval, and modern expressions of correlativism. The transcendental claim arises from the comprehensive revelation of God outlined either as a system of revealed truth on the one side, or a comprehensive philosophy of history incorporating natural and special revelation in one grand scheme of covenantal relation on the other side. Therefore, Ventil reasons that a truly transcendental argument takes any fact of experience which it wishes to investigate, tries to determine what the presuppositions of a fact must be in order to make it what it is, and then says any method 
that does not maintain that not a single fact can be known unless it be God that gives that fact meaning is an anti-Christian method. That anti-Christian method can be the Colossian syncretism, it can be Stoicism, it can be Epicureanism, it could be Kantian idealism, it could be ordinary language philosophy, it could be pragmatism, neo-pragmatism, it could be any endless permutation of a philosophical approach that seeks to give a totalizing account of reality that begins by excluding the revelation of the mystery and its comprehensive implications. But then Van Til said, on the other hand, if God is recognized as the only and final explanation of any and every fact, then no human being can utter a single syllable, whether in negation or affirmation, unless God gives it its existence. Thus, the transcendental argument seeks to discover what sort of foundations the house of human knowledge must have in order to be what it is. It should be particularly noted, he says, that only a system of philosophy that takes the concept of an absolute God seriously can really be said to employ a transcendental method. A truly transcendent God and a transcendental method go hand in hand. Now let me tie this together in light of Colossians 1.18 and 2.6 and end this module with something of a sermonic appeal. In Colossians 1.18, Paul says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 2, 6, and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Commenting on these passages, Greg Bonson in Always Ready comments that, quote, if the Christian will evidence commitment to Christ's personal lordship and presuppose the word of the Lord, He will be walking in Christ after the manner in which he received him. Hereby you will be rooted in him rather than rooted in the apostate presuppositions of worldly philosophy, and you will be able to walk with the steadfastness of faith in Christ. Such firm presuppositional faith in Christ will resist the secular world's demand for neutrality and reject the unbeliever's standards of knowledge and truth in favor of the authority of Christ's word. This faith will not be plundered of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ and will not be diluted by the crafty speech and vain deceit of secular philosophies. He says further, Therefore the new man, the believer, with a renewed mind that has been taught by Christ is no more to walk in the intellectual vanity and darkness which characterizes the unbelieving world. The Christian has new commitments, new presuppositions, a new Lord, a new direction and goal. He is a new man. The newness is expressed in his thinking and scholarship, for as in all other areas, Christ must have preeminence in the world of thought. And then he ends by adding a quote and says, We must concur with Dr. Cornelius Van Tillen saying this, quote, It is Christ as God who speaks to us in the Bible. 
Therefore, the Bible does not appeal to human reason as ultimate in order to justify what it says. It comes to the human being with absolute authority. Its claim is that human reason must itself be taken in the sense which Scripture takes it, namely, as created by God and properly subject to the authority of God. The two systems, that of the non-Christian and that of the Christian, differ because of the fact that their basic assumptions or presuppositions differ. On the non-Christian basis, man is assumed to be the final reference point in predication. The Reformed method frankly begins from above. It would presuppose God, but in presupposing God, it cannot place itself at any point on a neutral basis with the non-Christian. Believers themselves have not chosen the Christian position because they're wiser than others. What they have, they have by grace alone. But this fact does not mean they must accept the problematics of fallen man as right, or even as probably or possibly right. For the essence of the idea of Scripture is that it alone is the criterion of truth. It's from a Christian theory of knowledge. Christ speaks in the Scriptures with ultimate and self-authenticating authority. Paul in Colossians 2.8 says that any philosophy that is not according to Christ ends in empty deceit because it begins in empty deceit. As Van Til says, the starting point, method, and conclusion are always involved in one another. We've seen over the course of these lectures a number of key insights. First, as Reformed apologists, we're not defending anything but the truth of Scripture summarized in the ecumenical creeds and the Reformed confessions of the church. We seek to defend the creator-creature relation set forth in the deeper Protestant conception of classical Reformed Trinitarianism and classical Reformed Federalism that is set forth by Voss and Van Til and many others in the Reformed tradition. We're not interested in seeking to defend the creator-creature relation set forth in the nature-grace dualism of the deeper Catholic conception of Thomas Aquinas. We're not interested in defending the creator-creature relation set forth in the Geschichte history dialectic of Karl Barth. We're not interested in defending the novel doctrine of a self-limited, finite, and covenantly ignorant deity that you find in recent biblicist expressions of mutualism and correlativism. We are instead interested in defending the claims of the self-contained triune God who has revealed himself in the immutable person of Jesus Christ crucified and ascended as he is set forth as the second and last Adam, the mediator of the covenant of grace, the substance of the mystery. Secondly, the starting point in our apologetic is the deeper Protestant conception of the image of God that never for a moment existed before the fall apart from the terms of the covenant of works. We appeal to naturally implanted knowledge that is inalienable to the image endowment and forge the basis for natural religious fellowship with God before the fall. We do not accept the Thomistic starting point of natural reason devoid of such knowledge that begins only with sensible objects and seeks to infer natural knowledge of God from sensible objects. We do not accept the Bardian starting point of a so-called natural theology totally segregated in a forever inaccessible supratemporal 
time event called Christ, the Christ event, our starting point is the naturally implanted, ineradicable, and inescapable knowledge of God that ought never to be separated from special revelation of God in the covenant of works pre-fall and the covenant of grace post-fall. Third, the method of the Reformed apologists flows from the Reformed system of doctrine. We seek to defend the substance of the creator-creature relation as expressed in the deeper Protestant conception. We therefore reason apologetically in terms of the being, knowledge, plan, and revelation of the triune God and present the gospel to sinners who continue to bear that image as totally depraved, who suppress his natural revelation and spurn his special revelation. We therefore reason indirectly by way of presupposition, setting forth the Christian theistic system and pressing the unbeliever in light of its full-orbed truth. We do not pursue a blockhouse method that seeks to establish theism by natural reason, apart from revelation, only to move on to the supernatural truths of Christianity that deify the intellect and mystical union with the essence of God. That's the traditional Thomistic method. Fourth, and, and finally, we seek to follow the apologetical method set forth in Scripture. In Acts 17, Paul presents a covenant lawsuit that integrates natural and special revelation in one grand scheme of covenantal revelation. He presents the resurrection of Christ as judge, as the proof of final judgment. In Colossians 1, 15-2-8, Paul presents the mystery of Christ in its comprehensive scope and sets that revealed mystery over against all philosophies that find their source in human tradition and their substance in the elementary principles of this fallen age and not according to Christ. The eternal image of God, the firstborn over all creation, the incarnate king of heaven, the firstborn from among the dead, the ascended king of heaven who is preeminent in all things as head of the church. The deeper Protestant conception of the creator-creature relation offers a definite doctrinal system that requires a definite apologetical method. Let's continue to develop a Reformed theology together with a Reformed apologetic that seeks to set forth the truth of classical Reformed Trinitarianism and classical Reformed Federalism over against secular alternatives, ancient errors, or modern substitutes that veil the glory of the immutable and living triune God who has revealed himself to us in covenant and in our union with Jesus Christ our Lord, the self-attesting Christ of the Scriptures.